So, so Paul is going to work out of this context of unity and living out the gospel, and he's going to say the way that you contribute to unity is, is recognizing Christ gifting the church with individuals who he's portioned out grace and given them the right gifts so they can contribute the right way and his wisdom. Before we move on to the majesty, okay, I should I just stop for just a moment and say this. That means that none of you are useless in this congregation. I'm Kyle Grant, and I'm the lead pastor at Grace Bible Church. You know, biblical preaching is one of the highest priorities of our ministry, and I'm so thankful that you've chosen to listen. If you have any questions about our ministry or would like to know more about Christ, feel free to connect with us at www.gracebibleelkhart.com. Thank you again for spending these moments with us, and I pray that God transforms you by His grace through the Bible. If you're visiting with us this morning, we've been studying Ephesians now for most of the year. We're in chapter 4. Just to catch you up on our context, Paul is, Paul is taking all the theology that he has, he has unfolded now in chapters 1 through 3, theology regarding essentially the, what, has, what God has accomplished in the gospel in and through Christ, primarily for the establishment of the church and the unity of the church. And it is the hinging point in chapter 4 where we go from this oneness theology in chapters 1, one through three in Christ, and then chapter chapters chapter one primarily the theology of union in Christ, and then in chapter two the the unification of Jew and Gentile into Christ into one new humanity in Christ, and then in chapter three that Christ is the head of the body of the church, and that the the unity of the gospel and our union to Christ is primarily oriented and seen in the sphere of God's glory that is the church. That's the end of chapter 3, verse 20. And Paul begins to tell us what that looks like in chapters 4 through 6. And in primarily in chapter 4, he's going to continually orient us to this theology of unity, and that's what he's doing here. This morning's text is, is different because it seems like Paul takes a, a step away from what he's been doing, which is, begin to pound home this application of unity, and it seems like he, he takes a step away back into some more complex theology, but that's not what he does. This complex theology is in context of unity. And so I have used many times up until this point throughout our series the, the imagery of hiking a mountain. Remember, I, I've called Ephesians the Alps of the New Testament. So it's like we're hiking very high, difficult mountains of theology. And this morning, what we're going to do is, uh, so what you do when you hike a mountain is obviously you go up and then you go back down. And when Paul goes back down, he seemingly kind of brings it down to the, the carpet of our living, back to, back to a little more uh, uh, understandable, practical content. But Paul's actually going to converge the practical content with the heights of theology today. So if you can have an, in your mind, like imagine one of maybe those images you've seen of a, of a peak that is so high that it actually is in the clouds. And so this morning, we're going we're gonna to stay in the theology of the clouds, but we're going to have one foot settle in the earth today. Practical living for us. So let's read our text, having that understanding. 
starting in verse 7. But grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Well, remember everything that Paul is doing from chapter 4, essentially throughout the rest of the book, is framed with this understanding that we're to what? Walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. And how do we know the gospel? Well, he's just defended it in chapters 1 through 3. He's just explained it to us in chapters 1 through 3. And what is the first expression that he gives us, or the first primary expression or or living out of, of of gospel practice. It's it's the unity of the church. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness. Verse 2, with patience bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So this oneness and this unity is is the way that we live out gospel worthiness. And you notice there's no disconnect from this context. It is a continuation of this context of unity. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So what is this gifting that Paul talks about? This morning, I want to show you that we have a generous Christ, and that generous Christ means that we should respond to him a certain way. This text teaches us primarily that the generosity of Jesus to the church causes submission to his authority in the church. The generosity of Jesus to the church causes submission to his authority in the church. Now, I know that many of you are writing that down, so I'm just going to give you a moment to, as I unpack that, to, to, to take that in. The generosity of Jesus, that's expressed to us here in the first part of the text, verse 7 and 8. And then the authority of Jesus we will see most clearly in verse 10. And so let us start together by talking about Jesus' generosity in verses 7 and 8. Point number one. Jesus' generosity to the church. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, we've already talked about grace in the text, in, in the book. We've, we've talked about grace extensively in the book. Paul himself has talked about grace extensively in the book. But I don't want you to think about grace this way, the way that we've previously talked, of it, talked about it. By grace you were saved. We've talked about the immeasurable riches of grace, the uncountable, unquantifiable, impossibly measured riches of his grace that he has caused to abound toward us. In other words, the riches of his grace with which he has made us rich in grace. 
But this is a different grace than that. This is a very specific grace. This is not saving grace. It is a, a kind of sanctifying grace or expression of grace caused by a gracious spirit that is in Jesus. So Jesus expressed his grace in the church a specific way. And what is his expression of that grace? Well, it is this gifting. So, of course, we have to identify what that grace is. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Christ's gift. Remember I said this gift is not actually the gift of salvation. Paul has already established the gift of salvation. Now we're talking about a gift that he contributes to each individual member of the church. And in order to answer that fully, we, we don't really get the specific answer to that in this text unless you go down a few verses to verse 11, which we will come to, not today, but we'll come to it. And he gave, that is Jesus, giving to the church. And he gave apostles and prophets, evangelists and shepherds and, and shepherds and teachers to equip. So Jesus gave to the church the gift of pastors. But he says in verse 7 that he's given us all a gift. He has contribute, contributed to each of us a gift. He actually uses this same terminology over in Romans chapter 12 when he says there is a measure of, of giftedness given to us by the Spirit. And this word measure means apportioning out. So the gift that Paul talks about in this text is the gift that get Jesus has given you to contribute back to the church. Romans 12, he uses the same phrase about spiritual gifts. In verse 11, he talks about giving to the church the gift of pastors and teachers. But in verse 7, it says he has individually gifted each of us a measure of gifting motivated by his grace. So the generosity in verses 7 and 8 that Christ expresses is the idea of his gifting you to contribute to the church. You might know the, them as the spiritual gifts. You say, well, I thought that these are gifts of the Spirit. They are in their expression and in their application. When you live out your gifting in the church, you are living out the work of the Spirit. Therefore, you're contributing back that gift to the church. But in founding the church, Jesus is the giver of these gifts. This word measure, as I've already mentioned, maintains the idea of apportioning out the gifts or literally handing out the gifts according to the motivation of His grace. You might think of the image in your mind, we've got Christmas coming up. I don't know how you do the handing out of gifts in your family, but... But some people do this, some people do this right, and some people do this wrong, okay? Now, the right way to do it is all at once, everybody gets a gift, and then we all open a gift at the same time, and then we're all thankful together, and then when we're all done, we all rejoice in one another's generosity. The wrong way to do it 
is for everyone to open one gift at a time so that you're not done with Christmas until New Year's. However, however your family does it, that's, that's a side to what I'm saying now. There's usually, maybe it's one of the grandkids or maybe it's one of the kids or whatever. Someone who's reading the names and they're handing out the gift on the basis of the name. Now, if thought has gone into that gift, if intentionality has gone into that gift, you get a good gift for the right person. For example, if you buy me tools, you did a good job. If you buy me books, namely woodworking tools, okay? You don't have to do that unless you want to. If you buy me books, you did a good job. I mean, okay, depending on the book. There's a lot of bad books. You get my point. You have, you have, you have put intentional thought into that gift, and you've given the right gift to the right person. At the founding of the church, Jesus in his sovereign and divine wisdom gives and contributes by his grace the right gift to the right individual. He has measured out that gift and he's apportioned it by his grace. And in his divine wisdom and grace, in expressing his wisdom and giving you that gift, he knows exactly what you need to turn around and give that gift right back to the church so that you're contributing to the oneness of the church. So in Jesus gifting the church, he is gifting the church with people who gift back to the church. So the divine grace and wisdom of Jesus is seen in his gifting. Now I told this seems very simple and straightforward and it is. And I told you that there's a sense in which this text and this theology stays in the clouds of complexity and majesty. And it's where we go next that you will see that. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? So. So Paul is going to work out of this context of unity and living out the gospel, and he's going to say the way that you contribute to unity is, is recognizing Christ gifting the church with individuals who has portioned out grace and given them the right gifts so they can contribute the right way and his wisdom. Before we move on to the majesty, okay, I should I just stop for just a moment and say this. That means that none of you are useless in this congregation. See what I just said? That's really important. He's apportioned out, he's measured out by his grace who, who's here and what they're gonna do here. You say, well, I'm not doing anything here. I think you probably know what I would say to that. Then do something! Say, well, I don't know what to do. Ask. I don't know what I'm good at. Try stuff. 
I don't know what my gift is. Therefore, I'm going to sit until I just know. I know what my spiritual gifts are. I do. And I know what they're not. Do you know how I know what they're not? I've tried things. And there's some things I'm really bad at. But you know what that means? That means God in his wisdom has put people here who are not bad at the same things as me. Teenagers. God doesn't just have you here because your parents do. I want every teen to look at me right now. Every teen to look at me right now. God has gifted you to do something that no one else in this room is gifted to do. Because that's how cool the church is. And some of you think you just show up and you do your thing because, you know, mom and dad's got you here. Now we've moved outside the teenagers. Whatever reason you've come, exercise service. And the more you exercise service, you'll try more things. And the more you try more things, the more you're likely to find out what you're really good at and what you're not really good at. And then by his grace, you stay humble and you continue to do the things that you're good at. And he rounds out a balanced and beautifully beautifully working, beautifully organized unit. This is Jesus' gift to the church. What's Jesus' gift to the church? You. And how he has gifted you. So don't sit back. You say, I don't know what the spiritual gifts are. We're going to pause, actually, from our series in Ephesians for just a few weeks. We're going to talk about spiritual gifts because we're going to be in spiritual gifts. So we're just take like a week and like maybe two weeks, maybe two weeks, and talk about spiritual gifts. That's coming. Now, what about the in the clouds majestic theology that I've mentioned? Because this again, it seems like this seems like this seems like. Chapters one through three stuff, right? That he ascended and then descended and and he gave gifts to. Well, in order to understand that, obviously we have to understand the Old Testament text that Paul works with, that Paul points us back to, and we have to understand the way that Paul applies it here. Because we read Psalm 68 earlier. Namely, verse 18 is what he references here. And this is what it reads, Psalm 68, 18. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious that the Lord God may dwell there. Does anyone see something here? Look what Paul says. When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. You say, well, Paul just got confused. He used the wrong word. Nope. Paul does something very interesting and very intentional. So, of course, we have to understand what, what Psalm 68 is in reference to. Paul takes this Old Testament text and he interprets it in light of Jesus and the church and his specific application of here, Jesus gifting the dispersing of gifts and then the living out of those gifts and how they contribute to the oneness. 
There are several differences in how he uses Psalm 68, but the primary difference, as you note, as we noted together, is the changing of the verb from receiving to giving. And it doesn't make sense unless you understand what Psalm 68 is saying and then how Paul applies Psalm 68 to this text. You probably noticed when we read Psalm 68 that it is a battle psalm. It's in context of war. If, if you remember even verse 12, it says, the ladies divide up the spoil. In other words, victory has taken place for Israel, and they go into whatever town or people or tribe that they have conquered in battle, and they receive the spoil or the riches from that, that civilization that they've won or conquered. Perhaps a better understanding that you and I might have of the concept that Paul is giving of conquering something and then taking their riches is maybe maybe think of pirates you know every kid goes through their age where goes through an age where they're like fascinated by pirates and you know you know what pirates did right they well they did a lot of bad things but they would overtake something and then they would rob everyone that they that what they overtook they would take the spoil because of what they have conquered. They would overtake a ship. They would take the treasures from that. Of course, this is what Paul, this is what the psalmist is talking about. In ancient times, they would plunder their enemies, take their riches. So Paul is using this passage in this context to point out that Jesus has done something for the church. You say, well, what has Jesus done? Paul makes as a conqueror in Psalm 68 is the people and therefore taking their spoil. Paul makes in this text Jesus the victor, defeating and overtaking and conquering sin and thereby making all of us benefactors in the spoils of his victory. That as he has conquered sin and claimed glory for it, so Jesus, so Jesus shares with his people the treasures of that victory. And as in Psalm 68, the, the riches, the treasures are taken in G Jesus application, Paul's application of Christ in Ephesians 4 is that through this battle which Jesus himself has conquered, he shares the treasure and disperses the treasure so that now all we have received gifts and we contribute to the ongoing victory of Jesus Christ in the church. So this is the reason for Paul's changing the verb from receiving to giving. As Jesus has conquered sin, and receives glory from that gospel conqueror. So he makes his people not just benefactors of the gospel, not just receivers of grace and salvation, but receivers of its glory, receivers of its gifts. And one of the primary spheres for which we see the goodness and glory and generosity of Jesus in his victory is in the church. Listen, if Jesus had died in battle, no one receives the gifts. 
But since Jesus' death was not ultimate, he is able to express his generosity in and to the church. And Paul's going to take this concept of Jesus' victory and orient us to how he, what, what made that victory possible, which is the theological reality of the incarnation. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? And so we talked about Jesus' generosity, that is his gifting. And now let's talk together about Jesus' journey. Let's talk together about Jesus' journey. He ascended on high, he led a, co- a host of captives. You say, well, who are they? Actually, we think likely the captives here is is referring to his his victory over spiritual demonic forces the rulers and authorities he's already talked about in the book and then he he gives gifts the spoils of that victory to men well what made all of this possible it was the theological reality of the incarnation and so let's just look at what Paul does here in saying he ascended what does it mean that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth. And there's lots of conjecture on this passage. There's lots of ideas about this passage. I'm going to explain to you what I think is the best explanation of the text. I'm going to try to do it in a way that is concise. So obviously there's many things to consider regarding the condescension of Jesus or the incarnation, which enacted his ministry in and for the church. And specifically his ministry in and for the church is the giving of gifts. Some people are going to take the idea of his ascension and then descending into the lower regions. They're going to read it alongside of like 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 19 and chapter 4 through 6. And they're going to say things like, well, after Jesus died, he went to hell for those three days. And there's several ideas about why he might have done that. In my opinion, that's not what's going on here. Again, this is, this is my opinion. I'll, I'll show you what I think is the most logical explanation of the passage. This idea that after Jesus died, he went into hell, either for the purpose of basically rubbing it in his enemies' faces, like, see, look, I'm here, you didn't kill me, which is a fun idea, but I don't know that we have really scripture for it. Or that, actually, there's some ideas that, that to, to, to experience the fullness of our payment, Jesus had to suffer in hell. And, and I think that's even worse than the first few, okay? And again, I think we lack Bible for it. You say, well, what could Jesus be referring to here then? I believe that what's taking place is is clarified by our starting point. It's clarified by our starting point. Verse 9 and saying, or excuse me, uh, Verse 8, therefore it says, he ascended on high and he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men and saying he ascended. But what does it also mean that he had descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who has descended is the one who has ascended far above all things. So let's talk about our starting point. Where did he start in his incarnation? Obviously he started in heaven. So he starts in heaven, he begins the, and, and, and the incarnation was the descent. Listen, the de- this is important. The incarnation was the descent. So he starts in heaven, and he comes to the earth. 
And what does he do? He dies, he suffers and he dies, and he rises again. And what follows his resurrection? The ascension. So he goes back. One might say, if you're a student of church history here, one might say, well, the Apostles' Creed then has it wrong because it says something like this. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried, descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. The idea that Jesus went to hell was perpetuated by the Apostles' Creed, but we actually have pretty good history, historical documentation to know that the Apostles' Creed was altered in the 5th century, and it seems that this sentence was inserted. So I think it's, it's very simple what Paul is saying. I don't think we should overcomplicate it. Jesus starts in heaven, he comes to the earth, he goes back to heaven. It all depends on your starting point. Not that he comes to earth, he goes further down and then he goes all the way back up. Imagine with me, if you will, you're swimming and you're diving into the water. Any, any, any divers out there? Anyone who's like, maybe they've done some swimming in your past? Okay, well, anyone know what swimming is? Great. All right, imagine with me, you're on the diving board and you're diving into the water. What's your starting place? You're starting elevated and you're going down. Differentiate this from snorkeling, where you're already under and you go deeper, which snorkeling is really fun, but that's not what's going on here. It all depends on your starting point. So what, Jesus, what I think Paul is referring to is just very simply the incarnation of Jesus Christ. When he started in heaven, fully God, he came to the earth fully God, but took upon himself for the form of flesh, human flesh. Not just the form, but flesh itself. Not that he came to the earth, went to hell, and came back out. You say, well, what does all of this have to do with the unity of the church and the giving of gifts? You understand that we have no giving of gifts according to the measure of Christ's grace without the incarnation of Christ. There is no glory and there is no unity and there is no grace giving and gift giving in the church if Christ does not express humility for the sake of the church who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be taken or grasped or that he was entitled to, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. And that phrase emptied, please understand that he did not empty himself of divinity as is a common ancient heresy. By taking, on a, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Know what Paul does alongside of this text, which points out to us that Jesus in the incarnation went from heaven to the earth in order that we might go from the earth to heaven. Read this text alongside of it. Jesus' descent is deeper and deeper from the heavens to the earth. Being emptied himself, he takes upon the form of a servant and being the born of likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself and becoming obedient to death. How humbling was his death? It was death on a cross. This is the mind of humility that Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 2, or Philippians chapter 2. 
And what happens after this? He also ascends. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him a name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth. And every tongue agree that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So as we keep one foot on the earth and we talk about the importance of unity and the contribution, the perpetuation of grace in the church and how we give our gifts back to the church, we we understand the glory of what God has done through Christ and in Christ taking upon himself humanity to redeem us in the likeness of sinful flesh, to redeem us from our sinful flesh in the likeness of sinful flesh. And in giving himself the ultimate, most humble, most sacrificial gift, he contributes gifts to the church. So the expression of your gift back to the church is an expression of your likeness to Christ himself. in humbling yourself so that you can contribute to the perpetuation of Christ's grace in a local body. All of this made possible because Christ became like you, yet not without sin, in order to make you like him without sin. Paul stays up in the heavens. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Now remember, we've already seen this phrase, he might fill or is the fullness of already in the passage. And how does he express his fullness at the end of chapter one? Do you remember? He expresses the fullness of himself in the congregation. And so the Christ who is humble and obedient, submissive to his Father, takes upon himself the form of humanity, to redeem humanity, is gracious and generous. But this is God the ruler of the universe, the Son, who is matchless in glory and endless in grace. And where he desires and how he intends to express that matchless glory and that fathomless generosity is in the lives of his people in the home of a local body. And so finally, Paul moves to Jesus' jurisdiction over the church. His authority over the church. Now there is a very logical implication, and we're going to end with it this morning, 
there's a very logical impl implication. That if Jesus, who is generous, we've established that, and his gift in the church, we've seen that, humbled himself for our sake, we've seen that, came to be with us for God's purposes, we've seen that, ascends to fill all things, over all things, and is uncompared in authority and in glory, desires you to contribute grace that he himself has initiated and gifted in the context of a local church, you are both dishonoring his generosity and disobeying his authority if you do not give grace in the church. This is what Jesus intends. That his grace, his generosity, would be on full display because he has initiated the gifting in his people and through his redemptive work. And this, of all places, is where people should see oneness in grace, unity in service. Which is why, very simply, our main idea works both with the reality of his generosity and his authority. I'm going to end this way. Let's go back to our Christmas illustration just a moment. Imagine with me you're someone who gave a gift and they opened that gift and there was zero gratitude. They just went about their lives. It, it was like you didn't even do anything nice for them. How would you feel? What does that do to you? Now imagine God has sovereignly ordained an entire local body of people and his son has sacrificed his life to express his grace and give gift to that congregation. And however many people it needs to be in that congregation, however many people it is, none of them are expressing their gratitude by giving back the gift. What does this say about our perspective of God's glory and our appreciation for his son's generosity? Brothers and sisters, let us obey the authority of Jesus by expressing his great generosity towards us, by living out in service, in oneness, the gifts that he's given to our congregation. Let us pray.